Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cosy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Perseverance is absolutely essential and that would be the complete fundamental piece of advice that I think is true for everyone. However, I do also believe realism is necessary too, because you really do have to make sure that you're persevering at something realistic. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to author and criminal barrister, Tony Kent. Hello, I'm Steve Whiteley and welcome to Balancing Acts, a series of conversations with an array of creatives. We talk about their journey, the struggles they faced whilst progressing their career, strategies they used to unlock their creativity, how they balance their career with their personal lives, what impact this has had on their mental health and lots more. Tony grew up in a council estate in West London. He came from an Irish family of builders, some of whom, including his older brother, found themselves on the wrong side of the law. And it was during one of his brother's brushes with the law that Tony first dreamt of life as a barrister. Fast forward, and today he is one of the top barristers in the UK, criminal barristers representing some of the most notorious gangsters, criminals, you name it. However... Tony has another life outside of law, and that is as a highly successful author. His first novel, Killer Intent, a political thriller, was one of the must-reads of 2018. It was selected for the Zoe Ball Book Club, and it's currently being adapted into a TV series. His second thriller, Mark for Death, was picked for the Richard and Judy Book Club, and his third novel, Power Play, is out now. And it's a highly topical thriller of corruption and power. This was such an interesting conversation just to hear, you know, how Tony balances his life as a as a very busy and in-demand barrister with being an author and how he fits it all into his schedule whilst also being a husband and, and a father to a to a two-year-old. I think this is particularly inspiring if you're someone who has had an idea and you just sort of you know, you sometimes have these ideas and you just sort of let it drift. You know, you might get started on it and then, you know, life takes over, we get busy and then we forget about it. Tony started his first book at the age of 22, I think he says, and then finished it at 39 and then it got published. So it just goes to show it doesn't matter your age. It's just it's about tenacity, obviously, and talent. But anyway, Tony goes into it. He, he tells his whole story and uh, it's a really fascinating conversation. And as always, if you like this episode, if you like Balancing Acts, then please do rate and review 
us on us me me it's just me just little old me just review me on apple that would be uh lovely of you very nice very nice indeed uh so without further ado over to tony perfect So it was really fascinating um, reading your your story, Tony. Um, in terms of your 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 background, growing up on a council estate in in West London, coming from a large Irish family of builders, and I believe you, your mother was one of seventeen, and you had more than and had more than a hundred first cousins. Is that right? I think that's about right. Yeah, I think I think there's a that, it's definitely something uh, of that number. I mean, I don't think we've ever all been in one venue. So, but do you know, so, do, you know do you know all their names? Uh, no, God, I know. Um, I remember walking down the street once with a friend of mine. Uh, we were in Ricelip Manor in West London, near where I grew up. When we were walking down the street, these three guys walked towards us, and my friend said hello to them. And I didn't because I didn't know who they were. Uh, and after, as we walked past, he then said, have you fallen out with your cousin Leon? And I said, well, <laughs> we, I don't have a cousin Leon. What are you talking about? And so I went home and asked my mum, and apparently he's my Uncle George's boy, so I do have a cousin Leon. So I had no idea these guys were in any way related to me. Wow. So do you have um, big family get togethers on a on a regular basis or do they happen infrequently? And if so, is it a sort of a raucous affair? Uh, if we weren't in 2021 or just coming off 2020, I'd say that we have some. Right. <laughs> we, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't think we at the moment. No, I don't see anyone. I, I, I live in my house with my wife and my son and yeah. and, and occasionally speak to my mum on the portal. But uh, but no, in normal years when yeah. things are as they should be. We um we we don't have get together get get togethers with everybody. Uh, we, I mean that that would be it's, it's just just yeah, you've got a great big family. People fall out, people have arguments, etc. So it's not as big as you would imagine. But when I got married, we had to have our wedding in another country. Um, I because when we sat down to write it, my father-in-law was very kindly paying for it. And when we sat down to write the um to write the wedding list, the guest list. I realized that we were over 300 guests before we'd got anywhere near my wife's family or my wife's side of things. And that was merely sort of just, just um, I guess, not courtesy, get, uh, obligation invites. Because if you don't invite everybody, then there'll be a blood feud. <laughs> so we right. had to end up, the decision was, let's, let's just not get married in prison. Let's get married somewhere they won't want to come. <laughs> Good strategy. I think a lot of people do that to avoid the politics on who who yeah. won't make the cut how did you then arrive at the decision coming from that that background you know traditional working class background how did you then arrive at the decision to become a barrister because obviously you you which you still are and you sort of went through that whole experience before moving on to becoming an author um when you come from a family that size there there will inevitably be black sheep and one of the black sheep in that family happens to be my oldest brother okay and he was in and out. He's five years older than me. He was in and out of trouble since he was 17. So since I was 12 years old, he was in trouble at school long before that. But he was in and out of criminal trouble from the age of 17 until the age of about ooh, about 45. Um, you know, it's, it's been a while since he's been back in prison. Uh, but it's uh, it was for, most, for at least 20 year period from, from 17 onwards. He was in and out of prison. And um, I went to watch one of his trials in Aylesbury Crown Court. He was been he had been arrested for a um arrested for a alleged jewelry robbery. Uh, not a robbery, in fact, sort of a smash and grab of a jewelry store. And we knew that on this occasion, 
we knew that there was a good chance he hadn't done it. Now, we're, we were under no illusions with my brother. We didn't um, spend our times thinking you know, that he was always being wrongly accused. We were not stupid. However, on this occasion, they had lied. The police had lied about what they're about. They claimed to have found something in my mum and dad's house. Now, my mum and dad are as straight as straight can be. You know, my dad's a hardworking builder or was a hardworking builder. He's now retired. Mum was a housewife and they could have cut corners in their life if they wanted to. And, and they didn't. You know, they were very, very straightforward. And they would never have allowed anything in the house. But the police claimed to have found some of the stolen jewellery in the house. And it was totally untrue. So on this occasion, can I just apologise if I'm breathing hard or wheezing? I'm still getting over COVID a bit. So, oh, you've uh, had just, it. Just in case anyone's wondering why it is that I seem slightly out of breath. Um, we were, yeah, yeah we, 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 were, we, we knew they'd lied on this occasion. We also knew there was one particular police officer. There is one particular police officer who was well known in the area for being a crook himself. And it was him that had lied. So unusually for us, we went along. And we watched and supported my brother. I think I was 14 years old. And I remember watching the barrister who tore these guys to pieces over the lies they told. And I remember watching it and forgetting. Within 15 minutes, I'd forgotten my brother was on trial. And I was just completely and utterly just got obsessed by what I was watching. Completely took me. And I said to my mum at the end of that day, I said, that's what I want to do for a living. And that was that from that point onwards. That, that was what I wanted to do for a living. Her reaction being an Irish mum from a council estate in West London was, yeah, that's really good, but don't tell anybody, will you? Because right. they'll laugh at you. Yeah. Because back in that day, back, back then, you know, our experience was you don't become a barrister from that background. Barristers are posh. And so I then spent the next few years just not mentioning it to anybody, but it was always what I wanted to do. Right. And I guess it must be quite a challenge when you are, you come from that that sort of background. It's not, it's not like you have any um, close friends or family who are in that industry. So how, how do you keep yourself motivated to follow that path? Because it must be so easy to fall off it and to go with something more familiar. Well, I, I almost did. I almost did exactly what you've just said. I, I almost joined the army. When I got to 16, I tried to join the um, parachute regiment. Uh, and my mum wouldn't let me because apparently I hadn't thought this through, but Going back to Ireland at all, uh, having been a member of the parachute regiment, won't go down so well. So um, so she refused to sign me off. And I took the view, well, I'm just going to, I'll go and do my A-levels. And until I've, uh, and what, what, I had no intention of doing exams or anything like that. I, I, I kind of passed my GCSEs without really trying. I didn't go to school all the time. I was quite off, quite often I was off working with my dad. And when I was at school, I was quite often outside playing football very badly in the in the in the playground. So, um, and yet I, I managed somehow to pass the GCSEs. I didn't pass them with any kind of flying colours, but I passed them all without really going to any of the classes. So, at that point, I thought, well, I'll do my A levels. I might as well, uh, and I'll and I'll actually do a bit of work. But it was always just killing time because, it, again, I I had been convinced by everything around me that you don't become a barrister if you come from where I come from. And yeah. so much as I would love the idea and wanted to do it, I gradually just accepted I couldn't do it. And so I was going to join the army. As soon as I didn't need my mum to sign off anymore, as soon as I didn't need her permission, which was going to be when I was 18, then I was going to join the army. And then I managed, because I actually bothered going to school for my A-levels, I, because I actually attended for those, I ended up doing really quite well. And at that point, my mum then said, you know, maybe that other idea you had is not so not so um, pie in the sky after all. So it was at that point that 
that I started following it again. And that's when you studied law at Dundee University. And if I'm right, you chose that university because it had a boxing club. Yes. Um, I knew nothing about universities. I wasn't going. I was, go as I say, I was going to join the army. So I hadn't applied to anyone. I hadn't done any research. Okay. And everyone that I knew had been to all these different places. And they've been, you know, they, they've done their in research into the ground. And then I, I had 24 hours to go through clearing to find somewhere that would take me. And I went through a load of prospectuses and I had to find something to cut through them. I knew nothing. So I just decided I'll go to the one that had a boxing club because I, I was obsessed with boxing. Boxing was something, I mean, I'd spent most of my life in a boxing club at this point. Right. So I thought I'll, I'll go to the one with the, you know, I'll go to the one with the boxing club. I subsequently found out two things. Number one, every university has got a boxing club pretty much, but they just rested and didn't put it in their prospectus. Okay. And Dundee Boxing Club at the time was absolutely rubbish. <laughs> So it was, it was sort of two, two different uh, realisations once I was there. But it was a great, as decisions go, as inadvertent decisions go, it was a good one. It was a great place. And you took over the club, didn't you? I and, think and, I took over you... the club within six weeks. <laughs> right, okay. And then as a result, Dundee became university boxing champions across different weight divisions. Yes, we, um, we, were, the, we were the university boxing champions as a team. I think we won... I think ultimately in my second year, all the people I trained ended up winning. I think we won about seven gold medals in the Scottish Championship Fantastic. and five in the British Championship. The university level boxing is not that <laughs> it's not that elite, if I can put it that way. Okay. So um I just took the way that I had trained as opposed to the way that the university guys were training and said, No, no, that, you don't do it this way. You you actually do it this way. <laughs> and and it worked. Do you think the the discipline, you know, the self-discipline that you learn via boxing has had uh, an impact on your, your career as, as an author? Um, I guess, yeah, I guess so. I think in a roundabout way, because I think it's had an impact on my life. Okay. I think that boxing is a fundamental difference between myself and, and other people in my family who may not have um, stayed as sort of straight and narrow as okay. I did. Right, and I think there's a there's a reason that my elder brothers are behaving a certain way, and and myself and my younger brother, who is also a boxer, behave in the way we behave. And I think that mainly, I think it's sort of, I think it takes away the the the, the need when you're a youth to prove yourself because you're proving yourself through your sport every every day. Yeah, and without that need to prove yourself, you don't you don't need to get into trouble. You don't need to get into the kind of you, you don't do the kind of things that get you into trouble. Okay. The downside of it, of course, is that when a boxer, because I mean, ultimately it's a martial art and ultimately it's an extremely effective martial art. You know, it's not one like you know, criticizing any other ones. It's not one where when you get, when you strike a blow, you step back and they say, right now reform. Uh, it's one that where you strike a blow, you then strike another blow and then you strike another blow. And ultimately, you know, if you're a boxer, you are taught to hit harder, faster, more accurately and for longer. Uh, and also you are used to getting hit. So the upshot of it is that when people who box do get into the things they shouldn't get into in the street, they generally do far more damage than, mm. than would otherwise be the case. So boxing can get a bit of a bad name because you know, ultimately if a boxer's in a fight, he's generally going to win and he's generally going to win quite well. And the result of that is that you, know, you can get a bad name that it's that it's a, a violence that comes onto the street, but 90%, 95% of 
of boxers don't get involved in anything like that. I mean, yeah. ultimately, it's a great discipline and it's a great thing for kids. Yeah, there's 5% who are going to get in trouble, but they were getting in trouble whether they were boxing for or sure. not. For sure. And whereas there might be, say, 30% who aren't going to get in trouble because yeah. purely of boxing. And I think that the discipline that gave me is the discipline it gives the vast majority of those who do it myself my younger brother and i think that that yeah that that discipline goes into everything you do whether it's writing whether it's your career but it also it, it avoids the things that deny you those opportunities it avoids the youthful mistakes yes. that you end up paying for for the rest of your life did it feel like uh you kind of gone uh, full circle when you obviously you qualified as a barrister and then 2012 you're representing anthony joshua as a, as a client <laughs> um it, it would it kind of did i mean uh, josh wasn't as famous then obviously it was just, yeah, before, was just his, before the olympics wasn't it just before the olympics it's why yeah. he was able to, to take part in the olympics to be honest we we had the case expedited because he was kicked out the england team right and, to and qualify this, for this the, is for what he was arrested for possessing and dealing cannabis possession, right? possession yeah, yeah. yeah possession of intent to supply right cannabis okay. okay although he was not convicted of that um if you were when you read the papers they always talk about how he was how He's coming back from a conviction for drug dealing. He did not come back from a conviction for drug dealing because I won that case. And it really annoys me. Um, and the reason it annoys me is because I won that case very much against, against the odds. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's one of the ones, if someone was to say, what's your, what's your most unlikely result? That would be one of them because he was found with a lot of drugs and a lot of paraphernalia that suggested he was dealing with them. And yet we got him acquitted of dealing uh, he was actually convicted of merely of possession. Okay. And, th and that made a fundamental difference because if he'd been convicted of dealing, then he would not have been able to fight in, in the European Championships, which would have meant he couldn't have gone into the Olympics. Uh, he would never be able to fight in America, uh, although how that fight went, maybe he'd prefer that he didn't. And I mean, the reality is his career, would, his career wouldn't have happened apart from the result that we got him in that case. But yeah, it was... Um, I do a lot of work for boxers. I do a lot of work in terms of their uh, contractual stuff via somebody that works with me. But I do a lot of the disciplinary things. They get in trouble for what they say in the ring or say out the ring. Right. Uh, and, and any criminal cases that arise from them. We, we represent a huge amount of them. So I take it off the back of that result. You, uh, you've since had ringside seats to every one of AJ's, AJ's fights. Um, they're available, whether yeah, whether we've okay, whether we've okay. taken them or not. Well, he's, he's, I'll, I'll be honest; he's been very generous. We had ringside seats to the Klitschko fight, which is the one I'd love to have been at because I'm yeah. at war. And unfortunately, I had to go to a wedding that day, and I sat at a wedding table watching it on my on my phone with my wife punching me in the arm every couple of minutes as so I put that down. But no, he didn't let me go. I need to see what happens. <laughs> As, as a barrister and also a former boxer, and you say you represent boxers yourself, I wondered, had you or have you watched that the latest BBC Panorama documentary on uh, on MKT? For a variety of reasons that I can't go into, I would I can't imagine talk about that. Yeah, program. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I wanted to just poke the stick just to see if I could. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah. We'll move on. We'll move on. <laughs> we'll move swiftly on from that. <laughs> so, you talk me through then you. Becoming a barrister, obviously, that was your initial dream and, you know, your goal and that that happened. How do you then go from becoming a, um, a barrister, a successful barrister to, to a novelist, to an author? Um, it was a very, very long process. It's something I, I've always wanted to write. I've always written. 
and yeah. I've always very much enjoyed it. And uh, I used to write mainly for, it, it's obviously always just a personal thing that it was a hobby, it's what I wanted to do. And I write very, I like to think I write very visually. And I used to basically write ideas for TV shows and ideas for films. I'm very kind of sort of vi visual and film centric. And and then when I was you know, a certain age, I decided to write a book and I started writing it. Uh, but again, it was only ever for me. It was a hobby to see if I could do it. When I'd finished it, I showed it to my mum. And our great advice to people is don't do not take your mother's opinion on a book. Um, because she's going to love it anyway, whatever happens. And the thing is, she'll always see the influences that have gone in there. So she'll recognise things that no one else will. And it will... So my mum loved it. But then everyone's mum loves their book. Uh, I didn't take anything away from that. But then my older brother read it. And my older brother uh, is yeah, the one we spoke about earlier, is the one that has spent a lot of time sitting in a small cell with not much to do but read. Mm -hmm. So ironically, he's very well read. <laughs> and, okay. And, uh, and he read it and said, yeah, this is really good. I really like this. So I decided then at that point to do something with it. And I think I was about 32, 31, 32. And I thought, you know what, I will do something with this. So I, I, I hocked it around. I spoke to a few people. I rewrote it a few times. I took a lot of advice. But it was always still just a hobby. It was literally always a hobby for a good number of years, for three or four years. And I'd just go back to it and rewrite it. And it's, I think yeah, uh, my first book, Killer Intent, must be the most rewritten book of all time because the amount of times I revisited it was ridiculous. Uh, but And, and I, I used to sort of tentatively go to these book fairs and things and just, just wander around and just try to get an air of what do you do next? I really had no idea. Mm -hmm. More importantly, I just didn't have any time. I was just too busy. To, to really go at it. I think I may have sent it to about four agents. Now, I know okay. people send them off to hundreds of agents and all four of them rejected it out of hand. Well, I got the, you know, I got the, the stock letter back, which when you read between the lines means we haven't bothered reading this. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. um, so how long did it take you then, the, that process of finishing that first book, Killer Intent? Well, finishing From start it, to finish. When you first to... came up with the idea <laughs> to you finally finishing it. Okay, that would, to finish in the first draft, you mean? Final draft. Final draft. Oh, that would be, um, I published a book when I was 39. Final draft would have been when I was 39. I started that book when I was 22. So it would, yeah. 32, years. did you say? 20, 22. You started I, at 22. Yeah. I wrote the first four chapters the week that I began pupillage. Uh, pupillage, I'm sure you probably know, is pupillage is the, um, is the apprentice stage of being a barrister. It's your final stage yeah. of training. It's a week, it's a year long, and it's really very intense. Well, it can be a lot more than a year, but for me, it was a year. And it's very intense. And so the week before I, I'd started it, I bumped into somebody I'd known from school who um, asked me, uh, so what are you up to now? I said, well, I've just finished bar school. Uh, and he's, uh, he's like, well, you're being a barman? You have to go to bar school? I said, no, no, it's a different kind of bar and a different kind of school. And I explained where I was going and what I was doing. And he said, that's amazing, you coming from a family of villains. Now you're going to be a barrister. And obviously he was referencing my older brother. And as we said, you know, every massive family is going to have a few black sheep. So I'm not from a family of villains by any means. I've just got a you know, brother who's been in a bit of trouble. But my reaction to that was, that's a really good idea for a character. And so I went home and the next day I wrote the first four chapters of what would become Killer Intent. Uh, and then I didn't touch it again for 10 years. So although it was seven, although it's 17 years, it is literally four, four chapters and then did not touch it again until I was in my 30s. Were you, were you frustrated 
knowing that you had this idea that you parked or were you just so busy with your career you didn't even really think about it during those 10 years i was just 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 so busy just okay. just so busy um and then i revisited it and just thought i'm going to sit down and try and write this again and it was it was the writing process at that stage that completely took me i mean at, at that point i was just completely um taken away by, by by that process and i became addicted to it frankly I became obsessed with it and addicted to it. Luckily, I'd had that nice 10-year period to build up my practice and build up my income and put myself in a position where, where, I, um, where, where, where I was still striving and I was still incredibly busy, and it just remains that way all the time if you're going to be at the bar. But I was obsessed enough to give myself a few hours a day to try to, 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 try to go get, get on with it. And there's not many available hours in a, in a barrister's day if you're working full-time. And yet I was still finding them. And I realized then that I was becoming obsessed by, by the need to do this. Uh, and so I think really, I mean, once I'd been bitten by the bug, if we can put it that way, once I'd been bitten by the bug, I think I was in, um, from that point onwards, it was seven years between, between really getting stuck into writing it and finishing it. And did you do any courses on writing, creative writing during that period of time? Or were you I, just I sort of self-taught? I didn't. I've, I've never done a course of any sort. I, I wrote it. I then gave it to a to a, a publisher brother. Um, basically, a friend of mine had a brother who's a publisher. He didn't publish this kind of book, but he was kind enough to read it. And I mean, his advice was very interesting. He said, "This is written like a lawyer. You could lose every eighth word randomly, uh, okay. make it God knows how much shorter, and it still would be every bit as good, probably better." Um, but his best advice was put it in a drawer. And go and read the genre. Go and just read the best ones of the genre that you're trying to aim at. He said, then just collect who you like best and read everything by them. So I went off and started reading the thriller genre. I read a lot of David Baudacci. I read a lot of John Grisham. Um, I read a lot of Lee Child. And I went back six months later, took it out the drawer. And he was absolutely right. I, I think I lost probably about 100 pages without losing a single scene. And, and that, that was really when it got going. I then gave it to a friend of mine who works at Random House or used to work at Random House who did an edit for me. Um, and ultimately, a few, a couple of years later, I was uh, I was introduced to the man who owns Elliot and Thompson uh, just at a social event. And we got chatting. Uh, he asked me to send him a, uh, a PDF of it. He said, well, I've got a train train ride. To, I've got a train to catch to Scotland. I've got nothing to read in the train. Emailed it over to me. So I did. And he phoned me when he got off the train in Berwick-upon-Tweed and said, yeah, I'd be very interested in publishing this. Have you got any more? At which point I thought I'd better get on the book too. <laughs> what was the feeling like when he, you know, when he turned around, he said he was happy to publish it? It was, um, it was a slightly dazed feeling. It was sort of, a, I don't think it hit properly until I signed a contract. Okay. Um, it's the lawyer in me, isn't it? It's until there's been. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But, um, but, but, I was I was just dazed by it. I think everyone else was more taken aback than I was, but it isn't that I didn't. It isn't that I wasn't shocked. I think it was that I was too shocked. It was sort of well, yeah. you know, this 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 just isn't real. So therefore, we'll just carry on as normal. But then I signed a contract and got really drunk, and then that was that. What, <laughs> what was your brother's reaction? Uh, my brother's reaction. My brother was over the moon with it. I mean, my brother was. He and they, by that point, he was only interested really in reading the second book because he knew that was coming. Okay. Okay. Yes, I'm, it's interesting you saying about, um, you know, having to find the time to write. It's just I read one of your your recent tweets, which you pinned someone asking you recently about your your typical day. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Um, 
Yes, full on. 7.30 to 7.30 a.m. to 1.30, law stuff, 1.40 to 3, writing book four, 3 to 4, Zoom case conference, 4 to 5, weight training, 5 to 6, writing book four, 6 to 7.30, family time, 7.30 to 10.30, writing book four. It's pretty relentless. Is that every it, day? It, it has to be. I mean, uh, yeah, but at the moment, that's every day. Um, quite weekends a few of those. as well. Weekends in, as well. In normal yep. times, you know, pre-COVID, you had, you had a similar schedule to this. Um, well, this is the schedule that I have to have okay. because I've got a trial coming up. I and see. Once, once the trial starts, I won't be writing. I mean, I might manage a couple of hours at night, but once I'm in a trial, I, I can't write. Not really, not 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 of any kind of um, not any kind of length at all. Does the schedule change when you don't have a trial? Um, no, the schedule that that's the schedule. This I'm, is that's oh, I'm not writing. Okay, fine, fine. Yeah. Okay, that, 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 that's that's the trial when I'm not in a schedule. When I, I mean, it's not necessarily every day. There'll be I might do that for two weeks, then have a few days off, then get on for another two weeks. Basically, what the, I set up a law firm um, a while ago, about, about in 2012. I set up a law firm once I decided that I needed to find the time to write. I was in a very very good chambers. I was in the best chambers called Two Bedford Row. It was like playing for New Manchester City or Liverpool, and I left them and set up a, a two-man law firm with my friend, uh, which was pretty much unheard of to do at the time. And the main reason I did that was because if I was playing for that team, if I was in that chambers, I had to be a team player and I had to be available to work all the time. And the rule pretty much was, unless you've got a foreign ringtone on your phone, you pick up your phone uh, and you work. And if you're not doing your own work, you cover other people's work for them. That's the whole point of being in a chambers. And it got to the point where I realized it just wasn't compatible. If I wanted to write, it wasn't compatible. So I set up this law firm, which is called Ewing Law in Westminster. And having set up Ewing Law with my business partner, with a view to therefore having that bit more freedom, we're now busier than I ever was in Chambers. (laughs) And um, and, it's it's just, it's gone completely insane in terms of of business, which is great uh, in terms of the success of the law firm. But it just means now I have to just have that disciplined day uh, that you just read out. That has to be kind of how the day works. I mean, I started today. We're, we're, we're recording this, as you know, on a Monday at 11 a.m. I started today at 6.30. Um, and I think I dealt with about five different cases before we started this. When we finish this, I'll go back for another hour or two on cases. And then, uh, and then hopefully I'll get in four hours of writing. Perfect. Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, if you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference. And the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral, whatever that means. Okay, back to the chat. It's really interesting, isn't it? I think there's definitely something to be said for having a separate career and having a busy lifestyle because then that will motivate you to fill those those times, you know, the available yeah. hours you've got, as opposed to, right, this is just my sole focus as a career. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that I could ever I could I don't know that I could ever do it. I I, I juggle between I vacillate between the two. I love the idea of being able to just write. I've got so many ideas for so many different things. I've got films I want to write. I've got TV series I want to work on. Yeah. Um, and I've got, you know, I've got various, re- I've got really good contacts in the film world now and in the TV world. 
um, all of whom I've spoken to about these ideas and whom are, uh, all of whom are really quite interested in trying to develop them with me. Uh, but the, and, and I'd love to do that. But mm. at the same time, I'm not sure that I could ever give up my day job completely because I just think that actually, as you say, I think juggling the two gives me something I w- just wouldn't have otherwise. You also must get so much material from from your day job. I mean, is that hard when you've got hearings going on and you're a barrister? Does your sort of writer's brain ever click into gear? Oh, that would be good. Uh, all the time. <laughs> or, or, or it really does all all the time. We recently represented um, some that you would call them cyber criminals, I guess. Okay. They're very hev- very heavily involved in a money laundering on the dark web, and they were to be tried they were to be prosecuted in the us and in the uk and it became apparent to us when we were preparing this case and when we were having various conferences with the we were having conferences with the fbi and the department of justice all over zoom throughout the course of the last summer and it became very apparent to us that these conferences were turning into lectures by our clients as they explained to the fbi and the department of justice and various others and the national crime agency in england um, why it was that they did not know what they were talking about in terms of cybercrime, mm-hmm. and why it was that their experts were effectively useless in comparison to the people who were on the dark side. Okay. And the result of this has been that we have effectively done a catch-me-if-you-can scenario, uh, and you know, it, whilst pleading guilty to the offences which were charged, they are now being employed as consultants by all of these different agencies. Wow. And dealing with that that as a sort of plea bargain as a plea bargain. Yeah. Right. Uh, It took us months to do that. We had to uh, we had to engage one of our lawyers in New York to deal with it on that side of things as well, because obviously these things got to be they've got to be tied up and be watertight. Um, But going through that process, I mean, I actually sat in I sat in a room watching a Zoom call while somebody from the Department of Justice honestly and truthfully turned to the FBI and told them to leave the meeting because this bit's above your pay grade. And I'm just sitting there thinking, I want to write all of this. I need to write all of this now. But I can't, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Ah, so interesting. So what, what's the uh, different categories of, of criminals that you would represent? I only represent serious crime unless, this is going to sound terrible, unless they're paying privately. Um, if they're paying yeah. privately, I'll represent... Um, with certain exceptions, there are certain offences that I just don't do. I just okay. will not involve myself with certain allegations. Um, doesn't mean the people accused of them are guilty, but I just don't want anything to do with them. I don't deal with any kind. I don't really do sex crime. Okay. I certainly don't do anything that involves children. Okay. Um, I, I, I need to sleep at night. And ultimately, even if the person that I am representing is not guilty, I will still need to see things that will mean I can't sleep at night. So I do stay away from certain things, but generally, I represent only serious crime, um, unless obviously if, some, if someone's caught speeding and wants to pay a huge amount of money for me to go and deal with that, I'll go and deal with that. Yeah. But uh, but generally, I deal with murder, I deal with um, drug supply, major drug supply, drugs importations, um, serious armed robberies, uh, okay. th- th- those kinds of things, and and very high end fraud. Do you find it hard? I, I imagine probably not so much now because you've been doing it for you know a certain period of time. But do you ever find it hard not judging your clients um, sort of morally uh, or finding a, a um, way to divide that between you know professional and, and sort of moral perspective? I think I've done that by not representing people for certain crimes. I think okay. that 
that I think I think I've recognised over the last twenty years the ones that I can that I can draw that professional veil with, and the ones yeah. I can't. I once had to defend somebody for a for a sex crime. I didn't know what I didn't know it was going to be. I was sent by my clerks to South End Crown Court, and it was to um, it was to represent somebody for a, an offence that involved the child. That's the only time I've ever done that. It's the only time I've ever had to do a case like that. And my clerk sent me down there without telling me what it was. My clerk, Barris's clerks are kind of like their agents. They get the work and you go and do the work. Uh, and they and so they said, no, the brief will be at court. So I went down there and picked up the brief at court and realised what they lumbered me with. And I represented this person. And I have to say, I represented him well, because I'm, I'm not bad at what I do. I represented him well. And the moment my backside hit the chair, as soon as I sat down, having stood up and spoken for this person, the moment my backside hit the chair, I was just completely and utterly full of disgust uh, in myself. And I had to go and see him in a cell afterwards. And I'd, I'd be completely the biggest, the biggest, um, what was to be the right word? <laughs> the biggest sense of, of self-restraint I've ever had in my entire life was leaving that cell without doing what would have learned, without doing what would have led to me being arrested myself and losing my job and from that point onwards yeah I, I drew the line I, I I worked out where the professional veil can be drawn and where it can't got you okay yeah that's uh that's that's I can imagine that's pretty powerful experience to to go through so on your first book, Killer Intent, I know um, got selected for a, for a Zoe Ball book club, and then it's yeah. since been ad- adapted as a as a TV series, which I think is being directed by the Duncan Jones. Yep. Uh, well, if, if if we ever get it sold, um, that's okay. the direction. That's the direction we're going. Duncan will certainly be directing the premiere and directing the finale. Okay. Um, and which it's it's in the process at the moment. Whether it's a TV show, whether it's a film, is slightly in flux because it's a question of what uh, of of sort of which network would take it as a TV show or which studio would take it as a film. Okay. Um, Will you be involved in the script writing side of things? I have been involved in the, not so much the script writing of it, but in the script development and the script analysis. Um, There are two chaps involved who are experienced um, script writers. I've seen the script for the pilot. That was written with a lot of input from me. Um, There's a lot of changes. Yeah. And there's a lot. There's a lot less changes than there would have been <laughs> because we've uh, there's been f- some fairly significant debate on on what should change and what shouldn't change. Okay. Um, yeah, there, there were suggestions at one point that Michael Devlin might be called Michelle Devlin, and uh, <laughs> I, I'm afraid that's just a no go. <laughs> it's an absolute no go. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's interesting how how it's gone. It's interesting the way it's gone. Uh, but I mean, they're a great firm to work with. They're a great co- production company. Duncan is obviously um, as talented as they come in terms of being director, but the person who probably gets less credit, but it deserves lots more credits, not more than Duncan, but more than he gets, is Stuart Fenegham, who is the producer at Liberty Films. He's Duncan's producer. He's produced all of Duncan's films. Uh, and yeah, he he's the man who actually makes it happen. So, um, I mean, I've known Duncan and Stuart for a very long time. Uh, and I don't have, apart from on Twitter, a huge amount of interaction with Duncan at the moment because, yeah, he's... He's hands off at this stage, whereas at this stage Stuart's very much hands on. And um, I mean, it's it's a really interesting process. It can be a very frustrating process. It's very I was say. Uh, hold. You've got to hold your tongue quite a lot. 
Well, I guess it's also, do you find it challenging going from, you know, as an, as an author, you're in complete control of your domain, aren't you? In terms of the creative process, obviously, mm-hmm. once you have a publisher on board, you're going to get notes, but it's, it's less collaborative than the TV side of things. Was that a challenge once yeah. you started experiencing that side of things? Um, yeah, it, it really was. It really was because it was very interesting because they, they, they did something, they demonstrated to me very early on. They weren't meaning to, but it was just really obvious from what they were doing. They demonstrated for me very early on the ver- the, the big difference between visual and writing. Mm-hmm. And in Killer Intent, you basically have, for the vast majority of the book, you have got two characters um, who are uh, Michael and Sarah. They are effectively running to all intents and purposes, from the character of Joshua, who is in turn being pursued by the character of Dempsey. Now, that means that those three characters at certain points have to keep going to the place where the guy before them already was. Now, if you're following someone, uh, he's he's at point A, you're at point B, well, you then go to point A, where he, he's already gone on to wherever else. I should have done that the other way around. Should have started at A and B. But um, so, so when you're writing, but you're in the head of your character as he goes to the place that the previous character has already been. But you're in his head, so it's all new and it's all and it's all different. Visually, you're not in anyone's head when you're on a screen. So what that would transfer to on screen would be the one moment Sarah and Michael are at this place, the next episode Joshua's at the same place, and the next episode Demetrius is at the same place, and you're kind of seeing the same thing three times. So that has to change. And therefore, there are big structural changes as a result of that. And that makes total sense to me. And I completely get that. Um, weirdly where I struggled was get, was small changes, mm-hmm. small changes that didn't make any sense to me. I mean, for example, Sarah, the character, uh, and this is really, this this will seem really small, but Sarah is, is the lead female character and she smokes uh, in the book. And there's a reason for that because there's a scene where she shares a cigarette with somebody and it's an essential scene. And, and so therefore I had no choice. She had to be a smoker. She's not a smoker in the book, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the script. Mm-hmm. And yet, the same scene is in there and I was try- I'm trying to say to them what, what why why have we made that change I mean it's just why ha- why have we made that change and they, and they can't explain why they made the change and that's where that's where I get frustrated I'm very pragmatic in the sense that I understand big changes if they're necessary I really struggle with small changes that can't be justified yeah so does your role then encompass that of I guess uh, an executive producer Kind of, yeah. I think sort of executive producer, consultant producer is. Uh, okay. is uh, I'm not sure what the credit will be, but I've, um, but I've certainly, I've arranged that. The way we, the way we did the contracts, basically allowed me to have a certain amount more say. I mean, I don't have final say. I don't have a veto, but I do have, uh, yeah, I do have a very real consultancy role, as okay. opposed to sort of a, as opposed to one where where they just say we'll put your name on here, yeah, um, for the sake of it. Okay, I guess you won't be needing an agent to negotiate on your behalf then. No, no. Actually, do you know what? We did use an agent for this one. I don't have an agent. I've never had one. Yeah. Um, but we did use a, a media lawyer for, for, okay. for this because I do know where my knowledge begins and ends. <laughs> okay. Okay. So outside of your your career, obviously we we've you know we've highlighted that you've got a very packed schedule, but what do you do to to take your mind off work when you can? Um I spend as much time as I can with my wife and son. Um, we we had Joseph quite late. I'm 42 now and he's only two years old. So I think I, when you have a child that late and you've wanted one for a very long time, I think um, 
I think you can, it's not so much you appreciate it more, but you do understand how valuable it is to have that time with, with, with them. So I have a few hours a day where I, an hour and a half to two hours a day where I religiously will not do anything but spend some time with with him and also mm. with my wife. Now she's she spends lots of time with him, and you know I would like to think that I was able to give her a break there, but she's there when I'm with him, so it's not much of a break for her. Um, so that's the that's the main sort of every day other other than work uh, thing that must happen. Uh, until recently, I, I I like to train. I like to I, I try to stay fit. I do weight training and boxing. Um, I've got a little weight training and boxing gym uh, in the in what would otherwise be the garage of the house. Since COVID, I had COVID in December, and I've I've not really been in there. You know, we're talking now what, the fifteenth of February. I've not really been in there since then. Um, I'm struggling to find the time to get that in, and at the same time, I'm growing exponentially as a result. So I'm just putting more and more weight on. So for my own health and also my own mental well-being, I need to start finding the time to get in there. Um, so there's that. There's reading. Uh, I, you know, I, as all writers do, I love to read, and I love television and film. I love watching the TV and watching film. I mean, ultimately, again, we're, we're talking now a year into lockdown, really, aren't we? So mm. it's just been impossible to do to do much else. Of I mean, I'm a huge, I'm a huge lover of good restaurants. Just as you can probably tell <laughs> from <laughs> from the the excess size. Uh, is not only just caused by the lack of of going into the gym. Um, I'm a huge lover of good restaurants. I mean, I miss that massively. I love to travel, miss that massively. Mm-hmm. I've kind of accepted I'm going to be doing neither until, well, restaurants until the sort of late, latter part of the summer mm-hmm. and travel probably in 2022. Uh, but um, I like to go away to write, for one thing. I love to sit somewhere sunny while I'm writing, which is always nice. Uh, As in, will you go on sort of the equivalent of writing retreats? You'll take yourself off somewhere and write. No, no, I, I like to go with my with my wife, um, okay. and also now with Joseph. I guess we've not done it with Joseph because he's two and he's half of his life has been in lockdown. Mm. Um, he probably grow up agoraphobic as a result. But, um, yeah. but we're I, I, I like to go. So we we go to places like Cadacus in northern Spain, where you can just sit at a bar that overlooks the sea, and I'll sit there and I'll write for three hours and maybe four hours and have a couple of beers and, and a bit of lunch while writing and uh my wife will go off and do whatever she wants to do and that's and then you have your evening together and it's um it's just a nice way to write <laughs> yeah, <laughs> get, get, a, yeah get a surprising amount done that way yeah yeah that sounds like a good way of doing things get a balance of both both worlds yeah exactly and um are there any books that stand out to you over over time that have had a, a big impact on you in some way or inspired you? Um, in terms of inspiration, the one book I always tell people about, I always refer to back to is The Winner by David Bardacci. Um, before I'd read that book, I had never even contemplated being a writer. Okay. Uh, not well, a writer of books. I didn't know books like that exist. I, I was, I, we were not big readers as a family. We were, you know, we were, basic i guess and i mean that in the nicest possible way when we read we normally read history mm-hmm. right? you'd read information rather than stories you'd watch stories we'd watch tv or films uh and if you read it, history books military history anything else would be information that would be what we read i was also a big reader of classic mythology and things like that and religious stuff i was always interested in that but um when i was about 18 years old 17 or 18 my, my uncle recommended a book uh and it's the winner by david Bodeci. And so I read that. And up to this point, as I said, I've been writing ideas for films and TV shows and all this kind of stuff. And then I read The Winner and I just, I got halfway through it and I'd cast it. 
I, I knew who was going to play each of the characters. And I was completely just blown away that you can have a book like this. I thought, I can't believe these books exist. And so I then started reading everything by David Baldacci. Uh, I think he'd written four, four at that point. He's now written about 100. And I then started reading John Grisham. I started reading Michael Crichton. And I um, and that, that was it for me. But it was always, I always go back to the winner. The winner, I still, I still haven't read a better thriller than the winner. And that's the book that influenced me to become a writer. And when I made Power Play, when I wrote Power Play, I, I met David Baldacci at Capital Crime. And I asked whether or not he would mind having a read. And he did. And when he when he sent it back, there's a copy of it here that you can see. Um, he wrote an intricate, twisty minefield of geopolitics and absolute power gone wrong. Kent has outdone himself with this one. And I have to say, I've never been more blown away by anything other than the birth of my son. I can imagine. To, to what, what an incredible that. feeling that must have been. It, it was just amazing to have that sent back. And I, I'm now in irregular not you know very irregular uh, email contact with him and it's um i've got to know some writers really well some quite famous writers i mean ian rankin i know really really well ian's a fantastic guy and that's all and that's i still find that quite amazing in the same way as i i'm quite amazed by how many boxers i now know with guys that i used to watch i'm very good friends with steve collins and right and those guys but to get that from David Baldacci is a different sort of level of things. All due respect to Ian. <laughs> it's, it's a slightly different level because of what he was to me when I was 17. Sure. And I mean, it would be like me getting a message from Muhammad Ali I mean, it's yeah. or, or, or Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. You know, there are a couple of people that are in a, that are just a level that to you is a special, for, for reasons that are personal, are in a special sort of little category. Yeah. I mean, that's the beautiful thing, isn't it? About, you know, crossing over the threshold and entering this world of creativity you could have easily just stuck to what you're doing your career wise and have a very successful career as you had done but you decided to just go for it and then as a result obviously you've had the success but now you've got all these contemporaries who were your your heroes which is uh it's an amazing that's an amazing feeling what would be the one bit of advice you would give to aspiring writers um it's hard to give one, I think, but I think perseverance. Can I give two? Sure. Because I think I, I think that I, I do think that they are that they overlap. Yeah. Because a lot of people say perseverance. A lot of people say you've got to persevere, and they're absolutely right. You do. You won't get anywhere without it. I had a stroke of luck in the way that I met Lorne, who owns Elliot and Thompson, my publishers, and that was a stroke of luck. And and, and yeah, I can't. I don't expect that to happen to other people. Hmm. But but the but luck does create itself and creating you know, luck does come quite a lot from putting yourself out there and from keeping going and putting yourself in the right position. So perseverance yeah. is absolutely essential. And that would be the complete fundamental piece of advice that I think is true for everyone. However, I do also believe realism is necessary too, because you really do have to make sure that you're persevering at something realistic. Now it's not realistic. It's not unrealistic to think you'll get published. It's not unrealistic to think you could have success. It's none of these things are unrealistic and you really should keep striving for it, provided you can really write. Um, and I just think that people should, when you say, make sure you persevere, that should always come with that sort of caveat of, but do make sure some people have read your stuff that you trust and whose mm. opinion you respect and that you're persevering in something that is worth persevering in. Yeah, and um, I I know it's a little bit harsh, but I don't believe everyone has a book in them. 
I don't believe that everyone is a writer who, who's got at least this one story they can tell. Uh, there is a skill to this. There is an innate talent to this. And we're all very nice about it and, and, and try and say everyone can do this. No, no, not everyone can do this. I mean, it's it goes back to being a barrister. It goes back to when we'd have people coming in and applying to become barristers in our chambers and you'd interview them and they would be incapable of forming coherent sentences. And you would be thinking, who on earth told you this is the job for you? Hmm. And you, I just don't think it helps to be so nice that you actually let people um, persevere at something that's completely unrealistic. I do think some honesty is needed and therefore some self-realism is needed. And that is really not intended to put anyone off. It's mm. just, I think if you're going to give one piece of advice, it should always have that caveat. That's very sound advice. Final question for you, Tony, is what does the idea of balance mean to you or not? <laughs> the idea of balance to me the idea of balance is a thing to strive towards that seems to get further away every time i get a step closer to it uh i i would love to have some balance but for me balance basically means a good night's sleep uh because if i could at some point get that <laughs> as well as working then that would be fantastic um but yeah i think i think that's that's the answer to that question i'm afraid okay fantastic and where where's best for people to to find out you know what what you're up to and when when the fourth book is going to be available um if you can tolerate my far too many other opinions uh then instagram or twitter mainly twitter okay. uh i tr i try to keep up with facebook but i've not been on it for a few months uh i had a little bit of time off for twitter and instagram in order to um in order to get the book four written in, in a slot that i had available Mm -hmm. uh, I then caught COVID and then didn't get it written in the slot I had available because I was ill. Um, but yeah, I think Instagram, Inst Twitter mainly. Instagram I'm trying to get better with. Facebook I've kind of given up on. I just don't really get it. Mm -hmm. um, Twitter I think is the one I want. I'm on the most. You'll get all your information you need on there. But um, I have to admit, you'll also get an awful lot of ranting about Trump, boxing, Spurs, and other things that have popped into my head at any given point. So if you can put up with that, uh, then by all means, read it. Alternatively, there is a website, tonykent.net um, uh, is my website. There's information on there. We do have a newsletter. I'm not good at keeping up with it. One of my New Year's resolutions was that I would get better at keeping up with it. I broke it, but I will go back to it. It's just never ending, isn't it? All these things to do outside. This is things they don't tell you about once you- Exactly. You know, this is it's a career in itself. It is. I'd, I'd love to be, you know, I'd love to have the time to just say, right, two hours a month at the end of every month for two hours, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a little update for the newsletter and we'll send that out every month. But yeah. the problem is it's not two hours. It takes two hours to write it, but you'd have to think about what you've been up to mm. for so long that by the time it, I, I will at some point get better at this, <laughs> but, but for now, for now, I'm not so good. Yeah. First finish book four and then you can write the newsletter. Exactly. Yeah. And then the problem is I'm there, I've got book five in my head fighting oh, to well, get out. There you go. Yeah. And so, and so that's going to take over. <laughs> All right, Tony, look, it's been, um, yeah, fantastic talking to you. Thanks so much for your time. You too. Really Thank you very much. It. Perfect.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.